And it's Bruce Claggett in for Mike Smith, Keith Baldry, Global BC Legislative Bureau Chief. Joining us now for Baldry's Beat, Keith, Adrian Dix in meetings for 16 hours in total. You're going to expect something out of that, right? Yeah, 12.30 uh, today, uh, Minister Dix is going to be at Surrey Memorial Hospital in the lobby there. I'm told it, not just him, but... Uh, he and his and the team of various uh, senior health officials, including Dr. Victoria Lee, the CEO of Fraser Health, um, uh, I think a number of senior uh, officials in the health ministry, spent a long time at Surrey meeting, not just with emergency room doctors, but with obstetricians and maternity uh, level care, uh, cardiac care, hospitalists to try to come up with a solution to the problems that are vexing that hospital. So he's going to lay out a number of um, Initiatives, I'm told, at 12.30 today, I don't have the specifics, but I think it's basically a recognition of the unbelievable growth that Surrey's undergone in the last decade, about ten to 12,000 people a year growing the population. That puts enormous pressure on Surrey Memorial Hospital, unlike where, I mean, all hospitals are under pressure. Bruce, you've had segments on this where it's not just confined to Surrey, but Surrey does seem to be the most acute pressure point in the entire province because the growth there is so phenomenal in terms of the population. And you just do the math, it's almost like a mathematical formula. If you add 12,000 people to your community, a percentage of those people are going to need health care services, and that's an increase in demand for health care, and we're seeing that explode in Surrey. So I think the expectations are high to see what's going to be announced at 1230. I don't think there's a short-term fix. Uh, I think most people recognize this, but there has to be some medium and long-term planning laid out. Well, this comes down to a question, of course, with money, whether it's short-term fix or long-term fix. Is the money around to do anything about Surrey? Well, I think the money's there. I, I think where the issue is, are the human resources there? I mean, you really cannot find doctors fast enough right now, and not just in the Surrey, but right across the board. I mean, we've all talked about the lack of family doctors for, for almost about 900,000 people, uh, and that's not going to be fixed anytime soon, even though more and more family doctors are coming on stream buying into this new pay model. It is attracting more, more young uh, medical graduates to go into family practice, but that's going to take some time to solve that. And then you have the issue of hospitalists, which are doctors who work in hospitals, and that's what they do. And Surrey, again, the the uh, service delivery cannot keep pace with the demand that's growing and growing and growing. So uh, every community seems to be a little different, but I think it's going to be needs more than just money. I think it really needs to find ways to attract human resources, workers, not just doctors, but nurses as well, and various levels of nurses. There's critical care nurses, there's LPNs, um, emergency room nurses. It's, uh, it's a lack of human resources that seems to be at the heart of this. Well, this is a question I asked Adrian Dix about a few months ago, and he really didn't give an answer. But uh, the question was, how do you attract medical professionals to BC? What is BC's comparative advantage for staffing? And he said, well, it's a beautiful province, great place to be. I don't know if that's enough. No, particularly when you look at housing. You know, I think that's the real deal breaker for a lot of people where uh, the government, the new pay packet for for family doctors is certainly way more attractive than it was uh, a year ago. I mean, it's literally, in some cases, doubling their salaries. But you look at the price of housing, quite apart from just buying a house, even a well-paid doctor is going to have a, a, a bit of a challenge to even meet uh, sky-high rents if they've got a family. I mean, we're not talking one-bedroom dwellings. If they need a two- or three-bedroom dwelling, that's going to cost thousands of dollars a month. 
and that's after-tax income. So that's a bit of a turnoff, I would think, in terms of hiring people to BC. Yes, it's a very attractive place to live. Uh, best weather in the country, all that sort of stuff. Um, physically beautiful, but the price of housing in not just BC, Metro Vancouver, but in other places in BC as well. And, but that's a problem Toronto has as well. I think a number of urban centres in Canada with the housing crisis are going to find it hard to attract professionals to go live there. Oh, absolutely, right across the board. Keith, uh, ongoing discussions, uh, discussions about the drug strategy. Well, this is not going away. And do we have any, uh, anyone that's really got some consensus on what needs to be done? No, I heard your last segment there. Um, there, people have different prescriptions here. You know, I think there's a recognition that the the tough prohibition model hasn't worked. Obviously, that's that was in place for the bulk of the crisis that we've been through in terms of the state of emergency. But I think the jury's out still publicly whether the uh, the switch in strategies is working. Is decriminalization working? Is as well as people thought, I think there's probably a consensus that there's been some unforeseen or foreseen problems associated with it. Uh, you've got um, it's a, sort of a bumpy uh, start to it with, with communities, uh, councils complaining about open drug use in city parks and school grounds and such. That's not what people want. Uh, the ongoing... The, seems to be an emerging debate about the safer supply strategy. The, we talked yesterday at that extraordinary news conference. I thought of uh, the chief coroner, Lisa LaPointe, Dr. Bonnie Henry, and Jennifer Charlesworth, the um, uh, children's advocate, all speaking in favor of safer supply. But in response to some political criticism, notably by federal conservative leader Pierre Poliev, who is suggesting this is a, uh, a, a, a flawed strategy that is killing people. They now are saying the data does not support the notion that this is leading to uh, fatalities in the drug situation. It is still the illicit fentanyl on the street that is poisoning people and killing people. But, you know, I detect, Bruce, a bit of nervousness within government ranks about this whole issue, that it's it's not easily solved at all, but it's also fraught with political peril if things go really sideways on some of these initiatives that are just at the beginning of the process rather than several years into it. Well, exactly. And it almost seems to me like when you get more frustrated with a lack of a solution here, it's double downtime. And that's what we're hearing on both sides of this one. Let's move on to Campolano University uh, behind picket lines right now. And the staff there want remote work. Um, not everybody gets that privilege. No, and it's interesting. They want uh, they want it in the contract language, which would bound the employer's hands and no flexibilities, which means basically you could work from home no matter what the situation, even if problems arose as a result of working from home. If it's in the contract language, you, well, it's in the contract language, and it allows uh, the union to grieve, to go into a grievance procedure if uh, if they don't like what they're seeing. So it's interesting. The Public Service Alliance of Canada, which is all the federal employees, went on strike for a couple weeks recently, if you recall. Well, um, yeah. And the chief issue for them was, one of the chief issues, wasn't just wages, it was wanting language to allow their membership to work from home. At the end of the day, they did not get that. 
in the contract. But what they did get, and what other public sector unions are getting in BC, notably the BC Government Employees Union, is a letter of understanding between the, the employer and the union, which is less, more flexible and uh, for, for both sides in terms of this, because it's not in the contract language, so it's not part of a grievance procedure. But uh, that seems to have satisfied the leadership of the Public Service Alliance and the leadership of the BC Government Employees Union and other unions who have obtained similar letters of understanding. So it's going to be interesting whether, as you heard my news report there, yeah. whether 424 uh, um, supply workers... Uh, uh, can uh, support workers at Kapalama College can achieve something in a contract that 140,000 Public Service Alliance employees could not achieve, even with a two-week strike. So the fact that other public sector unions in BC have not achieved that goal, if that was indeed their goal, to get that language in their contract, doesn't speak optimistically about this union being able to succeed on this issue at the bargaining table. No, and Keith, this is still a pretty new issue. I mean, it hasn't been around in previous contracts, of course. Uh, It's something that came around and really hit us during the pandemic. So now we have to take a look at uh, who's getting the language, if anyone gets the language in there. And uh, flexibility, as you say, may be the key. Well, you know, the BCGU is, and other unions in the, in the public sector uh, have received letters of understanding. I mean, the, the head of the civil service here in BC did issue a directive that employees could work from home. I'm not sure they can work five days a week at home. I'd have to check on that. But they do have the provision to work at home through a letter of understanding and not writ in large in contract language that is has more teeth to it than a letter, letter of understanding. But it is, a you know, the whole way of working has changed in the pandemic. You know, shopping patterns have changed uh, and working patterns have changed. All sorts of things have changed in the pandemic. And one of the key ones is um, the ability to have remote work because remote work has profound impact on a lot of areas. Just take downtown Victoria, for example, where I am, where this city was built largely in terms of an economic model dependent on thousands of government workers working in ministry buildings in the downtown core. Many of those people are now working from home. As a result, there's a number of places in the downtown have shuttered their doors in terms of service industry because they no longer have the clientele, the coffee shops, the restaurants, the the employees who come downtown and, and go for coffee or go for lunch. There's just fewer of those people doing that, and that has an economic impact. So shifting to working from home has an economic impact on businesses that depend on people not working at home, but working, uh, commuting and working in a different place. Bruce Claggett in for Mike, along with Keith Baldry, and your phone calls at 604-280-9898. Any topic for Keith from Adrian Dix right through to Capilano University and the strike there. Let's go right to the phones in Coquitlam. Daryl, good morning, Daryl. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I would just like your take and case on, I just do not understand how the people want to work from home. They can go to a concert, they can go to a restaurant, they can go to a hockey game, they can go to a bar, and they can go grocery shopping, but they can't go to their office. Elon Musk made some very controversial remarks about three weeks ago on how this thinking is somewhat privileged. And he said to the effect, people are building cars for you and processing food for you to eat, and they have to go to their work sites, and you can't. BlackRock and and, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase just said, as of April, their employees are going back to work a minimum four days a week at their offices. I'd just like your take on that. Appreciate that. Uh, Keith? 
definitely. Yeah, well, so, I mean, some people work from art, from work from home, sorry, uh, because it actually, you know, suits their lifestyle, fits their family needs, and I don't think there's a lot of problem with that. But I've had a couple discussions with deputy ministers the last couple of years who wonder, does the government, does the employer have a responsibility to the community in which it operates to ensure that its workforce actually participates in the local economy because the local economy was built on the workforce. That's sort of the issue here in Victoria for because so much of the downtown core was was leased office space and, and rented space because of people working down here instead of working from home. Um, so th- I think it's a larger issue than, than just working from home. There is sort of, is there a moral responsibility to not work from home all the time to participate in your community? But again, that's a traditional view of things. If, if our means of work is changing profoundly, then the economic model that was developed which was dependent on people not working from home, may have to be revisited as well. I don't sure you know if one is morally superior than the other, but it is a change, and it's a change in the community. It's a change in the local economy. I appreciate the phone call, Daryl. I also think there is a, a thing that there's perception you have to be aware of, and when it comes to working in the civil service, you know, uh, sometimes people are going to account for every little thing that you do, even if you end up uh, working the long hours and extra hours working from home. Maybe it is a perception issue that you have to at least be aware of. Appreciate the call. In Langley, Chris, good morning. Hey, guys. Uh, I don't know if you know the numbers or if it's too early, Keith, um, but I'm we are more interested with the drug uh, overdose issue. Uh, are we seeing a decrease in overdoses? Are we seeing an increase uh, the same versus kind of the one-off or the loopholes? And, of course, there's those issues that need to be to be figured out. But if we're talking about whether we should or we shouldn't, I think the bigger picture should be uh, looked at as far as uh, if it's successful or we're seeing any success. Good question. When do we see the numbers, Keith? We should see them, I think, next week. or this, we, we see them monthly, of course. So we had the April numbers, uh, which were higher than March. So there's been no decline in deaths. In fact, that, that's been pretty steady. It's about six deaths a day is the average. Uh, 80%, 85% of those deaths are a result of um, illicit fentanyl being in the system. And we expect the, the, the main numbers should come out either next week or the week after that, I would think. Um, it's a monthly news conference from Chief Coroner Lisa LaPointe, and unfortunately it's sort of a depressing thing because the numbers never seem to change. They're pretty consistent. 79% of the deaths since this crisis began are in men, are men, uh, sort of disproportionate number. And Bruce, you talked to one of your earlier guests about construction. There is a disproportionate number of men working in construction who have passed away in the drug yeah. crisis. That's one demographic that seems to be pretty consistent. Uh, but 162 kids under the age of 19 have also died uh, in this crisis. So it, it affects all age groups, uh, some more than others, all communities, some more than others. Uh, 14% of the deaths occurred in the downtown east side, but that means 86% of the deaths were outside the downtown east side. So just, there's a disproportionate uh, high death rate in the downtown east side because the population is not that big. But it's a reminder that this drug crisis is occurring in every single town in BC and in all age groups, but primarily men, and men between the age of 19 and 59 seems to be the biggest, uh, most affected group. 